Hi, my name is Elijah, and welcome to my podcast, Songwriting for Songwriters. Joining me today is a very special guest, legendary DJ and broadcaster, Whispering Bob Harris. I thought it'd be really interesting to speak to Bob about songwriting and songs and hear his point of view about what makes a great song and his favourite songwriters, how he picks songs for his show, and thought that might be interesting to you, whether you're a songwriter or just a lover of music. We speak about his, uh, his life in music, how he curates his shows, the time he met John Lennon, his favourite songwriters, and so much more. He's a lovely, lovely man, and uh, I'm really grateful to him for joining me on the podcast, and I think you will love the show. So please subscribe, share with all your friends, and listen to the lovely voice of Bob Harris. Joining me today on my Songwriting for Songwriters podcast is an absolute legend, Bob Harris. Bob, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. It's uh, a joy to have you here. And I can see there that you're in your library, which looks amazing, full of music. Yeah, this is the studio. I'm trying to think whether you've been here. No, I, I haven't. Think... Ah, I said, is it Gravity Drive haven't done a under the apple tree session then. No, not yet, but uh, we'd love to do so. But <laughs> yeah, your library looks like expansive, so much music in there. You know, that's that must be a joy to to hang out in your music room. Yeah, it is. I love it. This is well. This is my studio. So there's the session area to my left. Um, yeah. I've got you propped up against the Mac screen, and uh, to my right is my um, workstation where I put all my programs together and do my writing. Fantastic, fantastic. It's always good to have a space, isn't it, to be able to to listen and do your work. It's yeah, it is. I love yeah. it in here. Well, I the, I first set the studio up nearly twenty years ago. Okay, wow. Uh, and I've got a little office next door as well. So when when I want to go somewhere separate, I've yeah. got a little cat next door. So <laughs> yeah, it's good. Good, good, good. So Bob, I mean, obviously. Um... You know you are you are loved and by so many people in, in the UK and across the globe, predominantly because you're of your voice. You as a broadcaster of a curator of music, and you've done that for generations. Like my generation, I grew up in the '90s, rewatching episodes of The Whistle Test and being introduced to music almost second or third hand from the from the time they were broadcast. Um, but you're a major figure, and for and 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 love for 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 the, all the right reasons because you care deeply about music but uh, the question I'd first like to ask you is do you remember the first song you fell in love with that captured your imagination as a younger man? I do vividly it was Diana by Paul Anker playing on the jukebox um, at a little um, east coast holiday town called Cromer in the mid-50s it was 1957 I was walking down the promenade with my mum and dad and I had this record being played on the jukebox of a coffee bar and the door was open and I went in and I cashed all my holiday money into Throtney Bits <laughs> because that's what the jukebox took. And I just fed all my Throtney Bits into the jukebox so that I could play this record over and over. Oh, wow. And that's what triggered my, you know, my love of music. My, it was the, how I first started buying records because I wanted to buy Diana and own it yeah and then I got a little dance set record player and um started buying my singles and I honestly think you know we used to have record hops in the cellar at my mum and dad's home and my record player down there and friends would come over and uh, we'd play each other our favorite new singles I'd be buying mine down at the local 
record shop in Northampton. And uh, I take my records home. People would bring their new singles over, and we were. So I would be playing them. I don't know the the new Jerry Lee Lewis single. They'd be playing me the new uh, Ricky Nelson single. And I remember playing Buddy Holly's Heartbeat one day, and just seeing the expression on everybody's faces and seeing the joy that music gave them. And that was the moment I felt that I that's what I wanted to do to communicate this beautiful yeah. feeling that you get from music to other people. So I think what what I'm doing now is just a bigger version of what I was doing in the little cellar then. <laughs> Fantastic. Are you somebody who, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that Diana song, are you somebody who, listen, when you hear a song that you love, do you listen to the same song repeatedly? Is it, I do that myself. Is that a thing? I like, do. Yeah, it is a thing. Yeah, I do it all the time. Or I'll go back. Um, to something yes i mean obviously a new song that i hear um that i just want to listen to again and again but there are a few songs that i go back to at certain moments um i mean <laughs> it's funny actually that the, the, there was an album out exactly 10 years ago which which is kind of or was even at the time somewhat derided but i think is a genuinely great album and that's Here's to the Good Times by Florida Georgia Line. It's the one with Cruz on it. But it's also um, uh, got a track on it called Round Here. And the lyrics, the production, everything about it, it's such an up record. Yeah. Um, and if I feel a bit low or just feel like putting something on to give me a boost, then I'll go back to florida georgia line that album is it's called here's to the good times and that's exactly what it is it's amazing that isn't it music i mean i've just got just in the last two days it's you know sort of for whatever reason for reflective reasons i've been needing john lennon and needing you know mind games and number nine dream and just needing to be in his world for a second just to, to get that john hit you know um, yeah that reflective thing so it's you know i appreciate your um what you're saying there that you can go go to a song can't you you can go to an artist and a song on a record and it will change your mood and it'll lift you up or allow you to be reflective and that's the gift that keeps on giving yeah it is i mean music is a fantastic platform for unification as well yeah i mean it's we've seen the world um divide so dramatically over the last few years and um uh, the, the harmony exists so little now but harmony exists in music in the literal sense but also in it, it's a common denominator it's it, it pulls people together yeah um i've got a in my office i've got a little poster with crossy stills and nash which says music is love yeah. and uh, i think that's true yeah it is absolutely true absolutely true um so when you when you were playing your friends those records and you you had that kind of initial idea that you wanted to be someone who shared music with people was that a from a did you know then that would be like a broadcasting element or did you were you a songwriter or a musician yourself no i wasn't it was always thinking that i would be that person introducing that music Fabulous. um i'd already love i already loved the radio my mum had a big old uh stereogram in the corner of the room uh had radio dials on the front and even as a four or five year old i remember sitting by the side of this beautiful piece of furniture with my mum listening to the radio, the old light programme and the occasional, you know, music programme. Um, obviously the goons yeah. were, were big at that moment. 
but also I suppose Pick of the Pops uh, with David Jacobs at the time and Radio Luxembourg. Um, okay. You know, I really did listen. I was one of those people who had Radio Luxembourg on uh, with the with the signal phasing in and out and the DJs and the whole line. I, I remember stumbling across AFN at one point, the American Forces Network, wow. and just being absolutely blown away by the pace and the sound of the music and everything. So, yeah, radio. And so I got a, a little Grundig tape machine and started recording very basic programs, chart programs, onto this Grundig tape machine. Um, I could do it when, once I graduated onto an auto-change record player. Uh, I, I could talk up to, I could, I could watch the, the thing would drop down, down the spindle onto the turntable and the arm would come across and the needle would go into the vinyl and I could talk up to the moment that the music started and then at the end, so I, then I'd hold the microphone by the speaker uh, while the record was playing and then that was, as it was fading, as most of them did in those days, I'd start talking and I'd watch the arm come off, the next thing would drop down the needle go back on that and introduce that and hold the microphone back to the speaker again. And I I, I could, the, the spindle had a stack of 10, so I could do a, a program that lasted 10 records. Amazing. And I used to record them onto reel to reel. And my, my years later, my mum threatened to send some of these programs. Uh, in, in the punk era, she th threatened to send them to NME. <laughs> yeah. So. That's great, though, because, I mean, that's like, sometimes, I mean, I suppose music is so interwoven with technology and grows with technology. And even sometimes, you know, it's clear there that you're, learn you're learning through technology how to present a show, aren't you? Like the watching the records um, drop and you've got that time to talk, what, you know, to sort of, it's just so innocent, really, sometimes those kind of times where we didn't have the amount of technology we have now, even going back to the 90s when I was growing up, you were limited so you had to work with limitations or what technology you had and create something, which I think is um, is, is, is maybe not so relevant today, but it's, it's nice to hear that story. Well, also, when you think about, say, the technological um, uh, limitations that existed, uh, say, somewhere like Abbey Road, where, yeah. when the Beatles, were recording there yeah. that they were stretching the existing technology to the absolute limit of what it could do yeah, yeah. and um you know they had a great translator in sir george martin yeah but they were using reel-to-reel analog technology and yet they were creating such amazing sounds and amazing music yeah. um it was an expression of what was going on in their minds at the time you know so yeah yeah but I mean, you know, music has always been governed by technology, hasn't it? It's always well, put it, it's always reflected the technology of its time. I mean, that's happening now. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 absolutely. You're you're somebody who, um, you know, in the age of I don't know, in the age of like the presenter, maybe like the, at the moment, and there's a lot of presenters. And from my own ears or, and judgment, there's been some change in the last five or six years of, of, with DJs and, and how, maybe how things are curated onto radio. But you're somebody who, I believe, when when your show's on, we know there's quality. We know there's going to be someone who's listened to music. We you know we like, like yourself and Janice Long, other DJs, that music is absolutely the fundamental reason why that DJ is on the show. And so what's really interesting to me is how do you 
what are you looking for when you hear a new song, particularly from like a new artist or maybe an independent artist, someone who's less established? What gets your ear, and what and what are you looking for as a, as a as a DJ? Well, I suppose the first primary thing is the song. Um, whether I like the song. I mean, you know, nowadays you don't even necessarily, it isn't necessarily a song. It could be a sound or it could be a chord sequence. Um, but in my case, it, it is, it begins with the song. Um, how good is the song? What is the song saying? How is that song then interpreted? It's it's one of the main reasons I love country music so much because country music is about the song yeah. that um lovely sort of <laughs> phrase that country music uses to describe itself three chords and the truth i think that i i go with that you see i think that's a very valid description of what country music is it's three chords there's a simplicity to it it gets straight to the point three chords and the truth uh the truth is the you know at, at its best country music is is telling the stories of the lives of the people who listen to it. So, yeah, that that's a big strong. You know, the so it begins with the song, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we're going back into obviously, um, it, it's what kind of advice, if you have any, would you give a songwriter in in trying to get a song onto radio? How how do you and your producer producer and team select a song you know what wh what do you decide obviously there's a love of your love of the song but there mm. is a process isn't there and i suppose i'm uh, talking here to lots of songwriters on this podcast like what is that process and and how do you kind of select to play one song over another well we reach a, an element of subjectivity here now obviously i mean i'm i'm the mark hagen and i work together as a brilliant team Mark produces the programme in the sense that he administrates all the elements of the programme. Yeah. So he'll, he'll he'll be booking the session, uh, making the students sure the studio is okay, making sure that that everything's organised. The, the, uh, when it comes to choosing the music, I, I'm the one with the pen in my hand, if you like. Yeah. And there are several things that govern that. I mean, with country. Unfortunately, I've only got an hour a week. It's sure. really you're trying to cram several gallons into into a pint pot here. But the first thing is that we are now the program's been identified by a lot of our friends and a lot of the big stars in Nashville as being somewhere to aim yeah. a brand new record towards. Yeah. So we get offered a lot of exclusives now. Yeah. from the really big stars. I mean, I'm talking Luke Combs or Be In Touch or, um, you know, and, and say, I've got a new track coming out. I'd love you to play it first. Quite often now we're finding even that the the release schedule, um, artists are putting out records at 12 midnight on a Thursday night to give me the first play, literally a couple of hours before the record comes out or, or the, the track drops on uh, digital. Fabulous. So um, obviously if Luke Combs is sending me an exclusive, yeah. that's going to go in. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and if we've got two or three in a week and maybe a couple of session tracks, well, there we are. There's four or five tracks already. Yeah. So by now I put those in and I look at them and listen to them. And already I'm beginning to get some sense of 
balance what the balance of this show is going to be yeah. so let's say for example all of these um tracks that we that i've programmed so far are male by by, by male artists then immediately i'm going to start to look for female artists i may go through some anniversary uh research to see what was number one in the american charts this week and i usually go 5 10 15 20 but not always um so 2018 particularly if it's a great record by female artists that that's got a bit of tempo to it that i'm likely to probably start the show with that then in that case yeah um and my second record in it's always 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 you can check it on every show i do it's a song that says welcome come on in um the lyrics are literally encouraging you to do that you know we're gonna have a great evening we've got the songs listen to the radio whatever that message is you know you put it all together and that's my second song it's not then i do the menu to the, for the show and it's the th third song that we're beginning now to get into the meat of the program yeah. and certainly in the in the mid mid section probably from i don't know 20 25 past nine to about quarter to ten there's 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 the meat um and then as we come back out i'm, I'm beginning to build towards trevor Nelson is coming next and putting tempo in, and so, so there's a sweep. There's what I call a call a flow through, yeah. um, and I'm choosing literally track by track because as I put this next track in, the chances are, you know, it's something new, but it'll trigger a memory of something I've heard a little while ago or an oldie that I can make a segue with, and uh, so it's quite um, it, it's an art, yeah. You know, it's very very creative process and it's a process that i absolutely love and does that does that exist are you doing that through the week as you're thinking about the show are you sort of thinking about the kind of curating each show well mark will send on friday he sends me what's called what we call in play yeah and it's links to all the really hot new records in america or things that we've been sent or exclusives that um or you know names of people who are touring in play is quite an important factor in my building yeah. because um once i've got that in my hands even from that i can pick off three or four tracks instantly uh, to start building around you know those exclusives or those sessions um, and I, I love having something to build out from because, yeah. as I say, once something goes down on the paper, then you've got a sense of tempo, yeah. you know, because maybe the tracks that I'm looking at so far are quite slow. So yeah. they need, it needs an injection of more tempo around them, female, uh, then style. You know, we haven't got any bluegrass in this week or we haven't got any old time in this week or there's no really vintage country in this week let's say so i'm looking to weave those other elements into that show as well so i always say to people you know as far as the country show is concerned if, if you can if you can take a an overall view of it across maybe five or six programs it's in that way that you're getting a sense of the span yeah. of everything we do on the show um so the balance is really important to me and making sure that that i also go into the americana charts quite a lot and pick out um uh some new names that i think people might find interesting so every week there's someone in there almost certainly that you won't have heard before so oh. yeah it's really i love doing it so i get in play on friday 
Um, and then it's funny because I do it when I'm least expecting it. What I don't particularly like to do is sit down to work. I like to let the moment arrive when I'm, you know, I'm in the garden or something. And I suddenly get an idea. Yeah. And then I'll come down to the studio and then then I'll be here all day, you know. <laughs> I do have to say, when I listen to the show and, and, and I've listened to the show uh, over the years, I do really feel like that, you, like you said, that you're a friend introducing music to um, other friends. That often it's just it's just such a joy that you've thought about the records and how they link and the segues. And, and like, you know, you, you take, I always feel like you take me on a journey and kind of inform me about music. And then, kind of, but I look, what I particularly like is this, you almost feel like you've played a record and it made you think of this other record. And and that link of your personality, you know, choosing record to record, it's it's a really, it's, a, it's, it's an art form. It really is. And it's it's almost, a, I think on modern radio, it's a bit of a lost art form, really. So, for, 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 you know, from my point of view, our band, when we when we find, got an email ping from you back in the day when you said, I would, you know, send me, your song circles to uh, I might include it on the show, which you did. It was such a blessing to kind of because of that, because you're a respected uh, broadcaster who curates from a love of music. Getting your um, support was, you know, such a big thing for us to kind of believe in ourselves and the impact it had, and for many other people that I know that you've given your kind of stamp of approval and blessing. But Bob, who who are your favourite songwriters? You know. I know it's a hard question, but who who would you name as your favourite songwriters? Um, I love Beth Nelson Chapman. She's great. I think she's so wonderful and honest and uh, open in her writing. There's a song of hers called um, How We Love, yeah. which just says everything um, about how I feel about life. I've learned a lot from Beth anyway through the years because... She is such an extraordinary person. Um, I love Laurie McKenna. I think Laurie is a, a brilliant writer. John Prine, obviously, um, the late John Prine. Um, I think Ashley McBride is fantastically good. Can you hear the plane going over? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm quite close here to um, Bryce Norton. Okay. Uh, the, yeah, and so we sometimes get helicopters and little light aircraft come over it always seems to happen when i've when mars and i've just set up to do a recording Brilliant. i'm not kidding the number of times we've opened the microphone fader uh, and then, just exactly as i'm taking a breath to start to talk we can hear in the distance a helicopter approaching fantastic. it's it's really quite amazing it happens it happens with stunning regularity <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah laurie mckenna john prine um yes i i this, I'm, I'm going to take you back to my computer because there's um, I love William Prince, yeah, um, but a Canadian artist. Um, but I've just finished putting next this Thursday's show together, and um, if I just pick off a couple of names because yeah. there's one in particular that I, I guy he's been around for a little while, but I've personally only just discovered him. Um, I'm, see, I, I, what I do is. Well, you can see this, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. these are these are the files of all the shows from this this year so far. Right. So, um, yeah, his his name is Logan Ledger. 
Okay. And he's got an album coming out called Golden State. And it's just, it's absolutely glorious. It really is. I'm also a massive fan of Lucas Nelson. Yeah. Uh, And in this show here, Sierra Farrell, um, she's got a track out on her long time coming album, which features Billy Strings. And, you know, he's an exciting new bluegrass artist. Um, Yeah. And I've got Ashley McBride singing Cool Little Bars uh, early on in the show as well. Brilliant. So, Bobby, I mean, you were like uh, broadcasting in, I mean, it still is a, a great time for songwriting, but in, in let's say, the go- a golden period of songwriting and introducing us to new songwriters who became legends, you know. How do you think a- a songwriting has evolved or changed from the 70s to today? Do you think, do you notice a different kind of songwriter? Or a kind of, do you think it's evolved? I think um, obviously topics are very different now uh, from what they were. Um, I mean, you know, lyric, lyrics have changed to reflect the times. Yeah. So in that way, yeah. songwriting has changed. There's yeah. also a yeah. huge um, amount of technology, often now, that's brought into play to assist with songwriting. But when you really strip it back, it, it's the same as it was. It's a person with ideas beginning to chisel them into shape and create a piece of music. I mean, in Nashville, the um, uh, the songwriting process is still very traditional. Yeah. They still yeah. do create songwriting meetings at publishing companies where uh, songwriter A meets up with songwriter B. Yeah. Usually a lyricist and a and a melodist. If that's is that a word, melodist? Um, could be, could who, be. Yeah, uh, who'll spend an afternoon together just exchanging ideas. And some people don't like collaborating. Uh, some yeah. people really yeah. take to it. But the process is probably about the same as it was um, uh, in days gone by. I mean, I'm currently touring, doing some tour dates with Martin Joseph. And uh, every now and again, Martin, I get Martin to explain to the audience his way of writing, yeah. which yeah. is incredible. And it, it's it's he he has a notebook, a big old notebook, and uh, he opens it up. So you've got two blank pages. Yeah. yeah. And on the page on the left, he's maybe got an idea for a song. And it happened, for example, fairly recently when he was commissioned by Radio 2 to write a song for a project. Um, they they commissioned five songwriters to write songs that reflected the life of people living in the northeast of England, yeah. uh, particularly, you know, the struggles that, that some people are experiencing. And uh, Martin went to a soup kitchen in Sunderland and um, uh, basically spent a lot of time there, a lot of time in the town, four or five days, just soaking soaking everything up. And uh, what he does is he puts Ryan Adams in the funny sort of way, he used to write in the same way, start putting words, just, just the odd phrase or a, a, a little sentence on the left-hand page. So as he was sitting in the soup kitchen, for example, you know, he really would write soup kitchen, um, uh, bread, poverty, 
happiness, care, warmth, uh, you know, all of sort of various things that, that he was seeing in front of him. And the, the, the real kind of click moment for him with the song was that, that, that he was building up to start to write was there was a woman there who was sort of, uh, you know, in a very, very bad way. And the woman who runs the soup kitchen went over to her to see if she was okay. And she took her a cup of tea. And uh, the, the, the woman who was in such a bad way said, oh, you've bought me a cup of love. And um, Martin thought that was such a beautiful phrase, yeah, and yeah. that immediately, right? That's 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 not just going to stay on the left-hand page. That goes across onto the right. So, cup of love was one of the first things that 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 started filling yeah. the. Yeah. Um, and and he'll look even say at in a local library. He'll just go in there and and go along the spines of the books. And suddenly see a title that's that triggers him in some way and now he's got a title and then he'll build from that so you know the art of songwriting it's obviously completely individual everybody has their own way of doing it but i don't think that the actual process of songwriting is going to change i think the way you know martin being that beautiful craftsperson that he is will it'll it'll always be a long the lines of the way that Martin works, that that's how songs are, are written. Fantastic. I mean, one of the joys of making this podcast is, you know, putting songwriting, deep diving songwriting and the, and the, and the process you've just spoken there about Martin's. It's, it's so brilliant to hear as a songwriter because each episode I'm finding out more about how, you know, we had Beth Nielsen Chapman on a couple of weeks ago, Ron Sexsmith, Scott Matthews, Catherine Williams, and each person has a slightly different way of doing things, but there's some similarities too. So one of my questions I'd love to ask you, you've hung around with so many songwriters from huge stars like Elton John, Robert Plant, to people that are in the country um, genre, all sorts. Do you think there's a like common thread or a common kind of way of being or characteristic that you can spot as an observer of songwriters? Do you think there's a sort of, or they're all different people or do you think there's a commonality? I think the commonality comes with great songwriters that they're they're writing from the heart, you know, they're prepared to kind of expose the inner workings of their soul. Yeah. Um that they're unabashed um and unapologetic about doing that. That yeah. um there's a sincerity and uh, a, a reality to their writing. That they're not kind of making it up because it that word rhymes with that word, you know. Uh, it really is coming from somewhere much, much deeper than that. Um, I don't know whether you've you've chatted with Martin, but I mean, you know, he's a, he would be a fantastic subject for your podcast, Elijah. He really would. I think your his way and. Um, you know, his depth of sincerity is just phenomenal. Yeah. And he backs that up, of course, with his charity, the Help Yourself Trust, where I'd let yourself trust rather, where he um, uh, takes on projects one every six months and raises money for soup kitchens or, or for a classroom in Palestine or, you know, for 
um, a centre in Edinburgh, whatever it is. And um, so the songwriting and Martin's sincerity and passion are, are completely intertwined. Um, and I think when you find that, like 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 with Beth, um, you know, Robert always said, you can always tell when somebody really means it. And I think that's the key to great songwriting, you know, when you really mean it. Yeah, there is a difference, isn't there? You can, you can hear it. Mm -hmm. some, some records and songs just arrive and they are, bang, there they are. How did you pick and curate bands for the whistle test then? Was that a similar way that you kind of pick uh, pick the shirt songs for the um, country show? No, that was, to start with anyway, that was very, very different. Because when I first started on Radio 1, um, I my first four shows were sitting in for John Peel, actually, in August 1970. And uh, my producer, Jeff Griffin, uh, who's in his 80s now, Jeff, he's, I saw him a little while ago, actually. He said to me, you bring in all your music because this is your chance now to express yourself in that way. And I'll teach you how to put a program together. Great. So when I was describing earlier the way that I program build, so much of what I, the way that I create the framework for the for the music in the show, uh, I learned in those early days from Jeff. You know, it's funny because nowadays, but it's true. Jeff always said to me, right, start the program with something bright and familiar. <laughs> because then you'll hook somebody in, you know, you'll hook people in. So I always do. I always start with something bright and familiar. Right. That second song of mine is always the one that says, right, hi, come on in, uh, mm -hmm. you know. So um, it was a wonderful time, those early days in uh, the BBC at the time, because you did have that kind of freedom. And once I established myself at the BBC, on radio at least, there was an understanding that... I'd established the, I, I was able to build my own shows and they gave me the space to do that. So when I went across to Whistle Test, I expected that that's what my role would be. Sure. And of course, I immediately, Mike Appleton, who's the producer of the program and founder, was put me right immediately. No, 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 no. You are the presenter of the show. Right. And um, he, the criteria at the time was that he wanted a uh, broadcaster who could, or a journalist who could broadcast. So in other words, writing was an equally important part of your role as a presenter. So right. writer, researcher, yeah. all the presentation of the programme was yeah. delegated to me. Wow. All the choice of music was, was Mike. Okay. And to start with, it was, I found that really difficult, yeah. quite honest, you know. Um, it, it, I think back over it now, and I think Mike was absolutely amazing to stick with me because I wasn't being the easiest person okay. because I would, you know. But gradually, we built up a friendship and then we built up a trust and then he would begin to listen I would be out seeing bands. I'd see a band at the Marquee or something a couple of nights before and say, I've seen this incredible band. I've heard this track on this this amazing album. I'll bring it in and I'll play it to you because I was getting a lot of imports and stuff. So I became the program's kind of eyes and ears out on the ground, as it were. Right. Um, and then slowly, Mike and I 
then we didn't neither was in charge well I, you know as producer mike was was the boss but neither of us was was we were we were absolutely on an equal footing and um uh we then it became a partnership a friendship an expression of of that and that's one of the things that i think then made whistletest so powerful because the force of me and mike uh, you know with with the BBC to back us with the film trips we began to make going out to the States to discover artists that, you know, literally had never been seen here before. Um, by the time we got to the mid seventies, the program really did have a power to it. And um, that was a lot to do with the fact that Mike and I had now forged a partnership, which was a really strong bond. Yeah. So that was, that was amazing. It was amazing the way that process took place. And yeah, um, yeah. I think as I say, a lot of it was to do with, with Mike not running out of patience with me and uh, yeah. sticking with me, which, which he did. Well, in fact, well, you can't, you've got to stick with that voice. That's what, that's for certain. <laughs> um, I mean, was it possible to know when you played back in the day some of those records that came on to be went on to be such big hits and such powerful records? Did you could you could you know that before you played? Yeah, it? you would have heard not, not, No, not before we played it, but when we played it, yes. Because okay. bearing in mind that the whistle test at the time, it sounds so strange now, but it was the only thing on TV yeah. of its type. Yeah. You know, there are only three television channels, BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. And there are only two music shows, uh, Top of the Pops, which was the single show, and uh, The Old Grey Whistle Test, which was the album show. Yeah. So if you wanted to hear new album music by interesting artists, your one destination every week was Whistle Test. Yeah. Yeah. So as the programme began to push itself and the audience began to grow, so we began to realize that we were, the, the, I tell you, the absolute penny drop moment was when Focus appeared on the show okay. uh, towards the end of 1972, because they were unknown in Britain. Uh, and they appeared on, on, on Whistle Test with Jan Ackerman, absolutely brilliant guitarist. They were such an um, uh, um, eccentric group. Uh, Thies van Leer on keyboards and he was the one with the yodel and his range was just absolutely beyond belief and they played hocus pocus and sylvia right and um literally those two records singles slammed into the charts yeah. they, they had two albums out at the time they both went straight into the top 20 wow. and polydor their label called us up about three or four days later to say that they'd had to devote the whole of the resource of their German pressing plant to uh, furnish the 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 the, the demand wow. for Focus Records wow. as a result of their appearance on the show. Now that was the first time we really knew yeah. what an impact we were beginning to have. Yeah, but from then on, it was it became more and more obvious the the impact we were having to the point where by the time you get sort of four or five years later. You know, big record labels are, are are really targeting the program because they know that a, a, an appearance on Whistle Test is likely, if it, if it's successful, like Meatloaf, um, when we played the original video for Bat Out of Hell. Yeah. I mean, all hell broke loose, <laughs> literally. 
<laughs> you know, um, the the records. It, it was it was phenomenal. The impact of that, you know, the the the, um, uh, the video with the dry ice and the yeah. motorcycles yeah. in the graveyard, yeah. and yeah. that that record just exploded. And uh, it wasn't very long after that Meatloaf came over to the UK to play Hammersmith Odin, and I introduced him on stage. You know, Queen and the program were very closely associated at the time that we did the Queen special at Christmas 75. Literally, it was the week that Bohemian Rhapsody had just gone to number one. Mm -hmm. So we we were, the program was, and that world was, you know, we were, we were part of and influencing everything that was going on around us. It was really quite an amazing moment. It must have been incredibly exciting to to, to have... To have to have had that opportunity to present music to so many people and to also to some extent curate, literally curate the world of music. I mean, what a, what a, what an amazing thing! Well, when I think now about the the, the artists that we saw first on Whistle Test, you know, from um, I mean, I just started on Radio One with Alton, yeah, your song out, but uh, you know, Alton, David Bowie. Then as we got deeper into my time on the program, it really was, you know, the Eagles, Jackson Brown, Steely Dan, Little Feet, uh, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, that that West Coast sound yeah. was Joni Mitchell. It was made for Whistle Test and vice versa. Yeah. And we used to spend a lot of time out in Los Angeles. I mean, we really did. Funnily enough, uh, over the last couple of days, I've just been writing a profile on Brian Wilson. Wow. And um, it's given me a chance in my head to revisit LA in the 70s because I did a couple of big interviews with Brian in 74 and 76 um, in Bel Air and, uh, you know, Sunset Strip, the sunshine, the beaches, the culture. It was the music, the radio stations. It was phenomenal. And um, there was a, there was a, a station because LA has always been, it's always had the boss jocks. You know, I remember not being there in the 60s, but hearing about this amazing station there called 93KHJ, yeah. which, you know, you could probably make out a case for being the biggest radio station in the world at that point. Well, by the time we got there, KHJ was in decline, but other stations had come up and exciting stations. And in particular, there was a station called KTNQ, 10Q, um, that was blasting, you know, real hot, 70s music down Sunset Strip, you know, and every all the cars had thank you on their on their dials. And um, I got a call from one of the DJs on Thank You, a woman called Nancy Plum, who was was she was doing the evening show, and she was, I mean, she, her show was huge in in LA at the time, and she invited me on and. Uh, so I went down to the 10Q studios. It was fascinating to go in there because you know, so much of all the music was being triggered off carts. So the, 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 all the walls were lined with carts. Wow. And Nancy was doing this really fast-paced show. And here was me with my voice, BBC, London, England, and all of that. And uh, we had a really good chat. And uh, so the, the final record, just as our chat was coming to an end, she uh, started, the, we, we began to hear the uh, intro to Jive Talking. Wow. By the, by the Beach Boys. And uh, if you, you can, by uh, the Bee Gees rather. Yeah. And uh, if you can, if you remember, you know, how it builds. Yeah. And, and then 
it, it, it does quite a lot of that chick chick to guitar yes. before you finally get boom, 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 giant. So there's a long, quite a lot of intro. So she said, well, thanks, Bob Harris, for being here. What station are you on, Bob? And I go, 10Q. She says, no. What station are you on, Bob? I go, 10Q. She said, no. What station are you on, Bob? I go, 10Q. And she said, that's more like it. And then all of it up to the vocals, right? So Mike hadn't uh, come down to the the station with me but he'd been listening back in our, at our in our hotel so i suppose i got back to the hotel about 10 30 11 o'clock after being on nancy's show and uh i walked in and i said uh, so did you hear it then mike he said yes i did i said what did you think he looked at me he said seduced by the media <laughs> <laughs> but really? i i um i've always remembered that but a little while ago on instagram i got a dm from Nancy Plum. Wow. And she said, do you remember me? Wow. Uh, do you remember that night you came into my show? And of wow. course, I, I go, yeah, do I? It was one of the highlights of my entire time on the West Coast. Fantastic. You know, yeah. So, uh, yeah, those were, I mean, it really was an amazing time. I was thinking, actually, Ava and I were listening to Drive Talking the other day, actually, and funnily enough, I, it came on and I thought, do you know, that's quite a country song when you think about it. Like, it's got that disco element, but... Hearing it for the first time in a while, it sounds kind of countryish. Just to put that out there for you. Uh, well, I mean, the Bee Gees, as a as a production unit as well, quite as in addition to their own incredible track record. Um, you know, again, I I, I I stopped off at Criteria Sound a couple of times and spent time with them in Miami, which was absolutely amazing. Well, after their after Spirits having flown. Um, which was the sort of big follow-up to Saturday Night Fever. They then started working, didn't they, with producing other artists. And in fact, they saved a whole load of careers that at that point were in jeopardy. Barbara Streisand, yeah. you know, Dion Warwick, um, and of course, Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, Islands in the Stream. Yeah. Um, yeah. True, yeah. Truly remarkable uh, yeah. creators. So, Bob, a couple more questions, if you don't mind. Um, one of the, uh, I'm a huge Beatles fan, and I went on your website the other day, and you are as well, because I believe the Beatles are the most played band on your shows that I, from your archives, and that I managed to find that information. And you had a, um, a, a one of John John's greatest interviews, I think. You spoke to John Lennon, and what were your thoughts of John meeting John in that interview and him as a songwriter? Oh, gosh. Well, where do you start now? I mean, there is the definitive um, honest writer, uh, a bear, bearing your heart writer. You know, John didn't didn't leave anything out on the on the pitch, did he? <laughs> he, he, he gave everything. Um, and um, that's that's how I felt about him before I met him, how incredibly wholehearted he was about every single thing he did. Yeah. You know, he, even going back to the middle of Beatlemania and help. Yeah. You know, help was real. Yeah. That, that's what he meant that, yeah. that song. Help, yeah. I need somebody. Help, not just anybody, you know. Yeah. When I was young and so much younger to, than today, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, I never needed anybody in any way. But now, at times, I'm not so, you know, 
I need you now more than I ever have done before. Yeah. I can't remember the exact lyrics now, but you know, the, the, it's it's really when you listen to the lyrics of Help or see them written down, God, they're really moving. And um, what, what what was going on in John's head at that time? Well, I, and Cynthia, his wife Cynthia, had been always a long time friend of mine, right up to when she passed away, and. Um, I don't know. I just felt very connected to John before I even met him. Yeah. And when I did meet him, uh, meeting completely transcended any idea that he was John Lennon and I was this guy from Whistletest who flown over from London to interview him at the BBC. We immediately just got on as two guys. We really did. Right. He felt very comfortable with me. I was just... I just loved him. I thought he was fantastic. And we settled down into that. It was, there, there was no, you know, I didn't feel nerves or, we spent a day or two with him beforehand. And he'd, um, he and Yoko had just discovered that she was pregnant with Sean. So he was so happy and so relaxed, you know, he got the long, the lost weekend out of his system. Yeah. And uh, uh, he was ready to settle he was ready to talk and he was being completely honest and open and and um and you know you look at that interview and what did it it's one camera yeah. on john yeah and it, it comes in at him every now and again and comes back out again but basically that that's it yeah. so you're seeing that person yeah. you're really getting to know them yeah. in a relatively short period of time and i think that that you know, I remember Paul Gambaccini saying to me a few years ago that he thinks it's the best interview John ever did because he was so relaxed. I agree. And we were able to touch on topics that a lot of other people had approached with John, but which he wasn't willing to talk about, but he was with me. Yeah. So it was it was it was two guys who became instant best friends and then that was it. You know, it was amazing. I mean, it's just, it's like I've you know I'm a big Lennon fan, so I've spent hours just watching all his interviews from Dick Cavett interviews in the seventies and gone through them all. But that one has him in a place of maybe it's the it's you, obviously it's you and his love of you you and your work and and the British connection. But he he like you said and finding out about Sean, but it's just got him in a certain way which is just wonderful. So it is, him. isn't it? Yeah, it is. I I. I almost didn't know it at the time in that way yeah because i was i was just i had this the, the person who was in front of me that's yeah who that's was there kind of thing yeah, yeah. Uh, and you could only play what's in front of you yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, using lots of uh, football uh analogy. you know but, but, it, but it's true and 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 that person that i met that day or those couple of days was just so lovely and i warmed to him so much and you know, it was an interesting thing also that the interview was contextualized within New York because yeah. New York was in a hell of a mess at yeah. that moment. It was bankrupt. There were piles of rubbish on the streets. Um, I remember the the the, um, uh, the taxi that picked me and Mike up from the airport from JFK to take us into Manhattan. We got into this cab. There was a huge bulletproof barrier separating us from the driver there, there were uh, springs literally sticking up through the back seat of wow. this battered old um, yellow cab and uh, the driver said where you want to go and uh, Mike said the Algonquin Hotel please in uh, Man Manhattan he said okay shut up and 
<laughs> that was the guy. This is our introduction to New York. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, so it, you had this feeling it felt very tense on the street. Yeah, yeah. Right at the beginning of the conversation, I wanted to feel, find out how John felt about being in New York. You know, mm -hmm. as it happened, that question turned out. Now I think about. It, I hadn't thought of this before, but now I think it turned out to be quite prophetic because, you know, obviously John got shot on the streets yeah. outside his apartment in New York, but there was a tension to it in those days, which I found. Took, really took me by surprise and particularly having spent quite a lot of time previously in LA which was so sunny and yeah. all the brown skinned girls and the beach and the, the cars and the sunshine and the music and then you get to New York and it felt like Armageddon by comparison and yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. but it was but it was interesting because each time I went back to LA I liked LA slightly less which is not to say I didn't still love it, because I did. But okay. each time I went back to New York, I liked it more and more. And then I got New York, you know, I just got it. Uh, and suddenly now New York has taken over from L.A. in my affection. I mean, I was very lucky and still am, actually, you know, uh, with Whistle Test. It, the show took me to New Orleans and to Miami and to uh, San Francisco New York, LA, all the major music centers at the time. And then, of course, once I started doing the country show, country took me to Nashville. Yeah. And Nashville is the best place I've ever been in my life. So, I don't know. Fantastic. I've actually just started reading Peter Doggett's book, actually, about the Beatles, um, you know, post split. And it just went through that whole Beatles reaction to hearing about John's uh, passing, so it's quite, quite coincidental there to uh, to be talking about the same thing in in uh, New York and John. Bob, I'm going to um, thank you for your time, uh, and thank you for your service to music. Thank you for helping my band out, The Gravity Drive. And I'd like to finish the interview with one question, which would be this: I ask each songwriter if they could have written a song by somebody else who would they have um what song would they have liked to have uh, written but i'd like to ask you if you could invite any guest on a show to have a session with and have a chat with dead or alive if you were to do a show tomorrow what who would that guest be and why would you pick them oh my goodness um okay well i could i could answer the first question immediately by saying uh stand by me would be my song classic um, and I suppose, you know, I think I forged a really strong friendship with Lucas Nelson. Yeah. I mean, Lucas is at the forefront now of all the uh, rescue operations on the island of Maui. He has the house there. Um, but as a musician and as a person and um, the lineage, obviously, you know, he's so proud of his dad. Yeah. Willie Nelson. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, they, 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 they're on stage together, side by side, a lot. Yeah. And um, I think the stories, the the life, just, just, you know, the, the, Lucas just has music coming out of him the whole time. And so, yeah, I, 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 I would say Lucas Nelson. What a fantastic answer. Bob, thank you so much, my friend, for being for being with us today and for sharing well, your time. Thank and you. It's good. Thank you, Bob.